Hello and welcome to this podcast series on excellence featuring the 2016 Missouri Honor Medalists. I'm Jim Flink, Assistant Professor of Strategic Communication at the Missouri School of Journalism. The Missouri School of Journalism has awarded the Missouri Honor Medal for Distinguished Service since 1930. Medalists are selected by the faculty of the school on the basis of lifetime or superior achievement for distinguished service performed in such lines of journalistic endeavor as shall be selected each year for consideration. Past recipients include Tom Brokaw, Christiane Amanpour, Sir Winston Churchill, Gloria Steinem, Deborah Howell, David Granger, and Gordon Parks, among many others. This year, we focus on the common denominator each recipient holds, that is, of excellence. We're joined in this segment by the Chief Operating Officer of the American Advertising Federation, Connie Frazier. As COO, Ms. Frazier manages the AAF's day-to-day operations and leads the Mosaic Center and AAF's efforts to create a more inclusive advertising industry, which she's done since joining the AAF in 2004. The AAF Mosaic Center for Multiculturalism implements all of AAF's multicultural and diversity initiatives. The Mosaic Center is an established leader on multicultural marketing, advertising, and inclusion issues. The center's mission includes the development of new programs and services to recognize and develop diverse talent and promote broad and realistic portrayals of multicultural communities. Since joining the AAF in 2004, Frazier has increased corporate support of diversity programs, doubling the number of participants and financial support for the Most Promising Minority Students Program, launching the AAF Mosaic Career and Vendor Fairs, and creating the first ever AAF Student Conference. Connie Frazier, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're talking about excellence, and and we have a number of different uh, Missouri Honor Medalists from from a lot of different areas. But let's let's talk about excellence in advertising, and specifically about diversity in advertising, because that seems to be a hurdle in some respects that has been somewhat difficult to overcome. And I'm I'm curious as to why. Well, um, I'm going to start with I have a 1977 Advertising Age article. Um, that talks about diversity in advertising. And in many of our meetings, we refer back to that article. Um, There's complete agreement that we are doing much better in terms of diversity and inclusion, but there's still um, a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, What we've done is we have concentrated on programs that connect employers with high potential students through most of our programs, that being our most promising multicultural students program and our Mosaic Career Fairs. And those programs are very successful and usually um, before they graduate the students who participate have a job offer. Oftentimes they may have multiple job offers. I think what makes that program excellent is that It's completely driven by the recruiters and the employers. We work with them very closely to make sure that we're giving them a pipeline of students who meet the criteria that they have. So for instance, rather than just, you know, having our nominees or applicants submit their Um, submit their grades and an essay, et cetera. We have all of that reviewed by several um, recruiters, industry recruiters. And then we also um, do programs to try and make sure they're prepared. So we may send them articles about, you know, how to prepare for an interview. And we float their resumes throughout our system and um, help them. So, but I think in terms of where we are with diversity and inclusion within the advertising industry, We've done a really excellent job in terms of 
entry level, but the challenge now becomes once we get them into the industry, how do we keep them there? And I think that's a much more difficult challenge because then you're getting into the culture of the organization, and changing culture is much more difficult than identifying high-potential students. For instance, last year, we did a session for the recruiters, so we plan to start doing more work in that area because the environment has to be welcoming and one where students feel like they have the opportunity to grow, where they feel like what they say has value, and where they can make a contribution. You know, this, this issue of diversity in the workplace is certainly not something in the advertising industry alone, certainly in newsrooms, but in media in general, it seems to be um, something that has... Uh, that continues, persists, as you pointed out, uh, to, to be an issue. And, and yet, clearly, audiences more and more are more and more diverse. Uh, channels are more and more diverse. Are you optimistic that, that some of these efforts um, within organizations, plus the sort of the, the emergence of multiple channels and platforms, really gives greater opportunity? You know, I actually am optimistic in that we have a number of people who have gone through our program over the last 20 years hold, you know, really good positions within the advertising industry. I think that you also have to look at it in terms of students knowing that the advertising industry is a viable career. And to do that, you have to start working with them before they get into college because oftentimes they've already decided what they're going to major in. College is so very expensive. You're not going to change your major midway right. <laughs> and have to stay an extra <laughs> couple years. <laughs> so um, we've started to place more emphasis on doing outreach with high school students, and we do that through our ad camp programs. So we host three ad camps during the year, one in Chicago, um, which this year was held at Leo Burnett. We also hold one on Howard University's campus in Washington, D.C. And then the third one was held in New York on the campus of St. John's University. So we think that by letting students know that the ads just don't automatically appear on television or in print or wherever they might see them, that they're, you know, you can't study that and you can be part of that industry. So, you know, just in keeping with the research that indicates you have to let students know much earlier about career opportunities before they get to college. So I think we have to do a better job letting not only the students know, the young students know about advertising, but letting their parents know as well because they're involved in those decisions. So for instance, when we do our ad camps, the first day, you know, we invite the parents um, to stay. Now we did have a situation where one parent wanted to come to all the sessions. <laughs> we said that that won't work, right. but <laughs> <laughs> Might be a little bit too much. Right, but you're welcome to come back the last day <laughs> and see what they've learned. <laughs> because in um, with Ad Camp, they're um, giving a marketing challenge at the beginning of the program, and the program is six days. And they, you know, they have more or less theory during the day, and then they apply what they've learned. Um, to 
answer a marketing challenge at the end of the um, at the end of the week, and they present to their client, and their parents are there as well as other interested people. We try to combine the practical as well as the theoretical, so that they really get a good idea. You know, picking up on this conversation, it is it is so important in our media today. And I don't. The, the Guardian recently had an article about um, the fact that the the way that media is constructed, particularly online media these days, um, that you can get very myopic very quickly. Right? You you can only sort of get the kinds of conversations that are supposedly tailored to you. But but the the article points out this becomes a big part of our our larger issue that we're dealing with. Uh, nationally, and that is the ability to, to, to have an exchange and, and, and to have conversations with people who are unlike yourself. Mm-hmm. And I find that it's, it's so important and, and interesting that we are having this discussion about sort of how our media companies are structured when placed against that larger discussion of how are we interacting as a society. You know, I don't remember the statistic exactly, but I think that I think 91 percent of Caucasians' social circles consist of other Caucasians. Right. And then, um, you know, it breaks up to a few percent in terms of African Americans, Hispanic, Asian Americans, other. But I think that that's really important because if your social circle is limited and you have a somewhat limited professional circle, then the understanding of other groups isn't as great as it could be because you you don't interact with them. And, you know, just considering some of the things that's happening in the news today, I think a large part of it is not understanding and really knowing about other um, social circles other than the one that you come from yourself. We did some research in terms of like images. I'm very, I think images are crucial to us moving forward and having a better understanding of one another. You know, your research indicates that a lot of the media images that you see on television um, portray African Americans participating in burglaries, you know, and other illicit activities. But that's overestimated by 20 to 30 percent. So, you know, that's an issue in itself in that we're not portraying different ethnic groups accurately. Also, when you look at um, just the, you know, entertainment, television, what you see during prime time, you know, it's a lot of reality TV right now. And I can honestly say that there are no people in my social circle who act like most of the people on reality (laughs) TV. So. <laughs> right, which is maybe what makes it so riveting, but it also makes it very non-representative. Exactly. And then, too, I was on a panel, and it's amazing. People really think because it's called reality TV that it's reality, <laughs> but it's really being staged. Right. You know, there's someone, like, a- egging them on and, you know, letting them know how they want them to act so that it is riveting, as you said earlier. But I think another statistic that's very interesting that we should look at is um, I was at on a panel in October, and there was an organization, So She Can Run, and it's an organization to get uh, more um, women to run for public office. Mm-hmm. And in some of their research, they said that um, for young teenage girls, three out of four felt they were going to be famous. Wow. And I find that really interesting wow. because 
most people aren't famous, you know. Right. <laughs> so they their expectations are very different from what your um, yours and mine might have been when we were growing up. And I think we also have to look at the definition of what's famous, you know. So. And it's it, interesting because we, because we have platforms, right, that we hold in our hands that are our phones, right, and the mm-hmm. ability to broadcast to the world. I suppose that might be the connective tissue there. Yes, it is. And even talking, you know, about holding our phones in our hand, everyone has the opportunity to broadcast. I think that, you know, when I, I was a journalism major at Howard, and I won't say how many decades ago (laughs) that was, but it was quite a few. (laughs) And it was very different. You know, we looked at journalism in terms of it was supposed to be very objective, you know, the, the facts were presented, but the individuals were supposed to draw their own conclusions. Um, you know, you had your investigative reporters where they dug really deep, whereas now I think, you know, we're into the sound bites, mm-hmm. you know. So if we can get a good sound bite, then let's just go with it. And no one's really going deep. And so much sub- subjectivity exists within the news today, which is very different from the way I was taught journalism. (laughs) Well, and the point of this Guardian article was that truth becomes relative to, uh, without contextualization, it becomes relative to uh, sort of a a he says, she says sort of argument rather than taking the preponderance of the evidence and Mm -hmm. and measuring some study or some input against the overall body, it becomes becomes less weighted, right? It becomes as misrepresented in some respects for lack of context. Yes, definitely. We talked about hopefulness, and we're seeing this in newsrooms, certainly, that, uh, as you noted, people are becoming broadcasters, and, and really there's this rise of citizen journalism. Do you, do you see a rise of multiple voices, more multicultural voices that might emerge in, in a larger way, given that these platforms are in these folks' hands? Oh, definitely. I think that a lot of what's going on today probably, you know, didn't just surface within the last few years, but because of social media, more people know about it, and it's easier to tell, you know, a story now than it was several years ago. Um, It used to be that, you know, you had the decision makers in the newsroom, and they decided what was news, whereas now... (laughs) If I have a phone, I can decide what's news because I can put it out there in the, you know, my social media platforms myself. And if it picks up and goes viral, then it becomes news to a lot of people, not just me. Mm-hmm. And how about entrepreneurialism? Do you see, do you see a lot of young um, people coming to you and sort of talking with you about, I want to start my own? Yes, actually, I do. And working at Howard, there was a very entrepreneurial spirit with a number of our students. And, you know, some of them have gone on to to start their own businesses. So I think that, too, that also impacts the workplace as well, because you have talent. They excluded themselves from the workplace to do their own thing. So they're creating their own workplace, which I think is quite interesting, because the millennials' idea of um, work-life balance (laughs) is very different from ours. And I'll use a personal example. Um, Years ago, both my daughter and I stayed home. She stayed home from school. I stayed home from work because we had really bad codes. I uh, was on my laptop all day long. And at 5 o'clock, my daughter said, Mom, you're supposed to be sick. 
you've worked all day. <laughs> <laughs> you need to stop, <laughs> you know. And yeah. she was in junior high school, and I, was, and I thought to myself, Mm, she's going to work very differently yes. than I do. <laughs> and in fact, as, as you probably well know, uh, the Missouri School of Journalism in our strategic communication sequences are they specialize in youth and young adult market, the Yaya uh, generation. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to see the studies that come out on that very issue of work-life balance, what people are willing to do when they're willing to work. And I think places like television news organizations, they're having a hard time staffing people on those overnight shifts, right? Uh, because mm -hmm. they don't offer work life balance. Exactly. And the same with the advertising industry. Wally Snyder, he was the past president and CEO of AAF, and he used to say that the advertising industry ate their young because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you first start off, you're, you're at work all the time. And granted, you know, you get some opportunities to do some cool things, but you really work very long hours. And you know, what people are saying now is that they want flexibility in their work schedule. You know, they don't want to just be sitting in the office because, you know, my boss is still there and I'm supposed to wait until my boss leaves before I leave. So I think that we're going to have to um, look at restructuring, you know, our work environments within the advertising industry so that they're more conducive to the way young people want to work. And I think that young people are just as productive as we are. They just do it differently. So we have to engage them on their level. Well, we are so looking forward to having you and honoring you and the Mosaic Center and AAF when you get here in the fall. Well, James, I am looking forward to it as well. I think I might even bring my kids. <laughs> great, great. Well, we would love that. We've appreciated having you on this podcast series on Excellence, Connie Frazier. We're featuring the 2016 Missouri Honor Medalist. I'm Jim Flink, Assistant Professor of Strategic Communication at the Missouri School of Journalism. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.